0: what's up everyone and welcome to the long game podcast hosted by thomas koppelman and trade devore in each episode you'll hear us break down financial topics that are relevant to the lives of millennials and other young professionals our goal is to help bring credible financial information to you in short bite-sized episodes Thomas Kopelman and Trayton DeVore are the co-founders and financial planners at All Street Wealth. All opinions expressed by Thomas and Trayton are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of All Street Wealth. This podcast is for educational, informational, and entertainment purposes only. It should not be considered advice. Please consult with your financial advisor, tax, legal, and any other advisors you have before making any decisions regarding your financial plan. All right, what is up and welcome back everyone to another episode of the long game podcast today I am joined by jack thomas. He is a financial planner at creative planning And um, I think we're gonna talk about something very different So this might not apply to everybody But something that's been i've been coming across a lot is working with people that are either not born in the u.s either have like you know, they don't have their green card, they don't have full citizenship, or they're here for a short period of time, they're planning to leave, and Jack's actually, like, my go-to resource in helping solve any, like, planning problems or things to think about for these different types of people, so we're going to dive into all of that after Jack gives us a quick little intro of uh, who he is.
1: Yeah, Thomas, thanks for having me, I appreciate it, been looking forward to jumping on here with you. Uh, yeah, so as you said, uh, I'm a, a wealth manager with creative planning on the international team that we have over there. Most of the clients we work with are primarily U.S. citizens living outside the U.S., but also some non-U.S. persons with U.S. assets or, or otherwise. Um, and so we kind of have a lot of experience with that kind of niche uh, group of people who are uh, you know, in two different types of jurisdictions tax wise and can make things a little bit more, more complicated. I'm looking forward to kind of going into that with you in more detail uh, today.
0: Yeah, I think the best place to start is just really thinking through, like, why is financial planning for U.S. citizens abroad, like, so unique? And, And I mean, maybe even challenging is the right word.
1: Yeah, it can be challenging. And I think it really stems from the unique tax system the U.S. has in that it is a primarily a citizenship based taxation that we have. The vast majority of countries outside of the U.S. only have a residence-based taxation. If you are a, a U.K. citizen, let's say, and you live there for twenty years, and then you move to France and you're working there, you have a home there, you don't leave, leave France, France a whole lot, odds are you're not going to be paying tax to the U.K. anymore after after you know a year. Uh, and so that's different from the U.S. where no matter you know where you live or how long you've been outside the U.S., if you maintain that citizenship or U.S. green card, you still have to pay uh, uh, you know taxes on your worldwide income to the U.S. But then also in your home country, you might have a, a whole second set of tax rules to be considering at the same time. So we have to be able to try to figure out, number one, how do we reduce the potential for double taxation on your income? And then secondly, looking through both tax lenses to figure out how can we then minimize or reduce your taxes between those two different uh, sets of rules.
0: Yeah. The U.S. always has to get their tax dollars, right? (laughs) Absolutely.
1: They're probably one of the most strict countries across the world at finding their tax dollars. Uh, And that's also shown through, you know, in 2010, they passed FATCA, the Foreign Account Tax Compliance Act. And so what that did was it actually says that it's it's sort of in a way it mandates other countries to give the U.S. information on accounts owned by U.S. citizens abroad, which is not seen really anywhere else. So if you have a bank account as a U.S. citizen in Switzerland or Russia or anywhere else, they have to report back to the U.S. and say, okay, here's what they have, how much much money's in the account, so on and so forth, which makes it very difficult or even impossible long-term to be hiding money from the U.S. Um, And so we've seen a lot more compliance with the U.S. rules following that law. Uh, You really have to make sure that, you know, when you're a U.S. citizen, even if you're outside the the U.S. for a long time, continue to report, uh, you know, your taxes each year and also declare all of your foreign bank
0: accounts, you know, for that reason. Mm, Okay, that makes sense. I think, like, besides the challenges that, you know, everybody faces that have these issues depending on the country the treaty like if they're gonna leave or you know if they have their green card they're gonna stay here forever um i think really the hard part is on all the visas right like the the process of getting this or working to get your green card is i mean for some a nightmare right like i'm pretty sure what's the timeline to getting a green card right now it's definitely it's well over a decade right
1: yeah, I mean, I think it can depend person to person. If you are married to a U.S. citizen already, uh, if you have certain types of uh, work that you're doing, it can vary. And We don't deal as much with the with the immigration process on our team. But, yeah, you, you can be looking at 10 years or more to get a green card. In some yeah, cases.
0: The, the other thing that I've been coming across, too, is, I mean, there's a huge difference between, like, Hey, I can stay in the U S because it's tied to my job or like, obviously I am a full-time resident. Like I I have a a person I'm working with right now and his wife, you know, full, full citizen here, everything's good. She can work and do whatever she wants. He, on the other hand is, is tied to that job. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, he could get somewhat of a different job in, in that field, but he has entrepreneurial, you know hopes. Like that. that's what he wants to do is go start a business, but he doesn't have the ability to do it because he couldn't stay in the U.S. if he loses that job. Right. That's yeah. crazy.
1: Big difference for sure.
0: Um, okay. Well, let's walk through some of like, you know, the foundations of cross-border financial planning um, and maybe the best place to start is on income tax treaties.
1: Yeah. I mean, when we're starting to look at somebody's kind of cross-border financial plan and sorting out, you know what makes the most sense for them. There's kind of a few places you go to figure out what are the actual rules that they're exposed to and how does that kind of uh, take place uh, for them. A few different documents uh, that are important. The U.S. has developed these different agreements or treaties with most countries out there, certainly most developed countries they have treaties with. First one you mentioned there is the income tax treaty, which really just sort of identifies which country between the U.S. and that other treaty, you know, has the right to tax certain sorts of income. Is there any allowances or special exclusions that apply based on this specific treaty between countries? And that can really give you a kind of a starting point to figure out if certain types of accounts make sense for an individual, if certain income types might be taxed by one country or the other or, or not. Um, that's kind of the first one you use. but there's two other agreements as well that are separate. You have the estate tax treaties. There are fewer of those present, but those are sort of similar to income, but are more around, as you might expect, state taxes or or inheritance taxes. Um, The U.S. has an estate tax regime, right, where we're looking at the estate of a deceased individual being taxed and then being distributed to the heirs. Most countries have inheritance taxes where it's actually the inheritor who pays the tax So there can be issues with uh, that misalignment. So that treaty helps to kind of alleviate that in in some countries. And then lastly is totalization agreements, which is mostly trying to um, settle the different like state or or national pension systems that we have. So in the US it's social security, other country it might be like the the national pension system and just trying to rectify if, if one person is working in multiple countries, trying to give them a proper retirement benefit based on their contributions to different systems.
0: Okay. Well, maybe it would be helpful and interesting to some people is maybe let's walk through like a couple of the countries that we have treaties with that are, are, I would say, are like favorable and Mm -hmm. what that actually looks like and how it works in, you know, real practice.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, great great one. So, you know, if we're looking at a specific example with income tax treaties, let's say, how that might work is uh, I think a good country for us would be like, with France. So the US and France have an income tax treaty. And like I said, it kind of describes which country has the rights to tax different incomes, if there's different allowances or exclusions. France is a little bit unique because they have a few allowances that are are not so common. Um, Generally in these income tax treaties, regardless of what the treaty says, in each treaty there's something called a, a savings clause at the bottom which just kind of says that the U.S. can tax their citizens income regardless of what's being said in the treaty. But within the U.S.-France treaty, there's some some helpful uh, points from the French side of things mostly. Um, So if you're a U.S. citizen and you move to France, um, two main ones come to mind that are helpful that you might identify through reading the treaty. Firstly. for any U.S. sourced income that you're bringing into France, you can actually um, be able to avoid French taxation on that income. Uh, this is rare, and really unique to France, but they will essentially allow you to only pay U.S. tax on your U.S. sourced income. That can be, you know, IRA distributions. Um, that can also be, you know, if you're if you're getting income from um, like a portfolio, like dividends and income from U.S. source investments. So that's one thing where you wouldn't know that unless you're reading through the treaty, and that can give you a lot of different planning opportunities uh, to really reduce your French tax exposure because their rates are much higher as well. You got to remember, remember most Western European countries much higher tax rates. So any way you can find to reduce taxes on that side is is a huge uh, you know uh, deal. So we can. Have some strategies to come into play based on that tax treaty. So, for example, you know, if you want to retire to France, you might want to have your IRAs build up a little bit more and be able to use those, so because they're only U.S. taxable. Uh, and then you might want to have uh, your all of your U.S.-based investments, whether it's U.S. companies or U.S.-based ETFs, all based in your taxable account, and then have your other international funds or whatever else it might be in your IRA it's not taxable so there's ways to kind of position it to take advantage of that treaty statement um and be able to really maximize it
0: yeah i think this is really important because what you're talking about is for people like the the benefit of the treaty for people who are u.s citizens and then are going to probably go over to france but i think would also be interesting is like for france people who live here right and i don't know france pacific i've never worked with anybody but my guess because there's favorable tax treatments would be that like you, you live in the U.S., you pay U.S. tax, and then that helps offset, you're not going to be double taxed back in France.
1: Right. Yeah, well, the, the main point of the income tax treaties across the board is to reduce the potential for double taxation. That's really the, the first purpose of it um, across all of them. So that, that helps a lot to ensure that you're not paying income tax twice on different income sources. Um, and then, you know, aside from that is sort of the special things around different accounts or allowances. Um, so France is a good example, but you know, other income tax treaties are are out there too, that can have different allowances. I would say France is the one that has the most unique kind of special privileges though.
0: So let's say that you are from India, you live in the U S you work in the U S how does like income tax work there?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, each country can be quite different. Um, although I would say, with a lot of developed countries, and I'll even start to include India there, even though a lot of people will define them as emerging emerging markets still. But, um, you know, for most of them, once you have lived there for at least, say, six months or so, um, you often will become taxable on your worldwide income in that new country. So India, let's say there. Um, and so. Typically, it's, it's sort of like you would expect in the U.S. You have to report all of your worldwide income uh, to this new country. Let's say it's India in this
0: case. Um, so usually most of the our clients... Of you're from India, but you live in the U.S. and work in the U.S. Oh, so
1: you're saying you're kind of the opposite. So you're you know, like a non-U.S. Candidate. citizen. Yeah. That's, okay.
0: almost, that's what I see more now is there's a lot hmm. of people who are in the U.S. working in the U.S. from different countries. I actually, yeah. I mean, I'm sure you work with a good amount of people that are like, hey, I, I live here and I'm going to go move overseas. But for me, I actually see the opposite, way more common.
1: Yeah. No, there, there's definitely a, a solid segment of the population that is moving to the U.S., whether they're working in tech or otherwise, that's pretty yeah, popular. Exactly. And we see people doing that. Um, and so, yeah. So once they move to the U.S., uh, they become taxable on their worldwide income and assets, too, which you know can be problematic in some cases, because if you have different investments, outside the U.S., they don't always align with IRS rules. Um, So you have to be very aware of what the U.S. rules are before you become either a green card holder or become a resident long-term there in the U.S. Uh, And then also if you're building up U.S. retirement accounts while you're here or having options or other things you're building up from your company, um, you have to be able to plan properly for if you leave the U.S. again, kind of figure out how to properly manage those from a, a planning perspective.
0: Yeah. But would you say in general more more countries than not if you are working in the US you're basically paying US taxes and that's most of what your tax picture is especially on earned income.
1: Yeah, well in your example there if you're moving to the US in most cases other countries aren't going to have any taxation over you because they're residence based so you're only considering US based taxation. And then, you know, once you uh, leave the U.S., if you don't pick up citizenship or a green card, uh, for the most part, you can leave U.S. taxation behind, except for on U.S. retirement accounts or other assets located in the U.S.
0: Okay. On that note, can you talk a little bit about, like, the foreign earned income exclusion mm-hmm. and Yeah. what that
1: is? Yeah, so those are kind of that's another big tool for us as, as far as planning goes and trying to, you know, reduce um, the chance for double taxation. So even in the case where you don't have a tax treaty between your your new country and the U.S., you can always use the foreign earned income exclusion uh, or foreign tax credits um, on your U.S. tax return. Uh, Now what that does, if we look at the foreign earned income exclusion for 2023, that was $120,000. But essentially you're able to just take that first $120,000 of your foreign earned income, as the name implies, and sort of you know wipe that off of your your u.s tax return as far as liability goes for for paying taxes with that um so if you're someone if you're a u.s citizen you've you know moved to the uk you earn one hundred and ten thousand dollars there from you know working in the uk for a company there uh, when you come and do your u.s tax return you can use this foreign income exclusion wipe the full 110 away and it makes your reporting process much simpler firstly but also you avoid any additional potential for double taxation if the treaty did not somehow already cover that. Um, so it's a great tool to have in your back pocket. Even if you earn more than 120,000 though, you still have foreign tax credits to fall back on. Um, and you might be familiar with that if you've you know, owned investments in certain countries like Switzerland where they're already withholding taxes, you pay some small kind of foreign tax to them, and you're going through and doing your US tax fly and you have a, a few dollars of withholding there. You get foreign tax credits back, you know, if you've already paid tax elsewhere to a different country for your income. Um, so you're able to use that in conjunction with the foreign earned income exclusion, uh, or by itself if it works better for your your own tax situation.
0: Okay, that makes sense. Definitely something that people want to be to know about or be aware of. When I mean, way I, way too many people, I think, self file their taxes. Definitely mm-hmm. something that you want to know about. Absolutely. Um, Maybe let's talk about the exit tax next. I think that this is something that, I, that not everybody knows about. And I think there are some interesting planning opportunities around the exit tax.
1: Yeah. Exit tax is a big one. Um, and so this is primarily around exiting the US, right? So if, if you are a US citizen, or even if you have had a green card for a while, I, w- I want to say it's you know for, for five of the last eight years, something like that. Um, but if you want to give up your citizenship, um, you have to go through this, this kind of exit process, it's expatriation process, we call it, and it's possible that you could be liable for an exit tax if you meet uh, one of a few different tests. Um, so the, the three different tests that we have are we have a, a net worth test, which is right now is anything over $2 million uh, in net worth. There's an income test. Which is, you know, over a certain amount on average over the past five years. I want to say it's like one hundred and fifty thousand or so. It's, it's in that ballpark. And then there is also the the past five years of your returns all have to have been filed timely and, and accurately too. So they're going to go through and double check your past five years of returns. If you fail any three of those tests, if your net worth is too high, your income is too high, your returns were not completed properly, um, you will become what's what's called a, a covered expat. And you could be uh, liable for paying uh, an exit tax as you leave the country. And the exit tax is sort of just, uh, you know, a deemed realization of all of your unrealized gains across your different properties. So if you've got unrealized gains in your taxable investment account or, you know, other properties you might have, uh, we're deeming them being sold today and then requiring you to pay a tax as you leave uh, the U.S. and give up your, your U.S. citizenship.
0: Yeah. And it's something that, I have been seeing is they, we have these really intelligent people. They've made a bunch of money at a tech company. They've had a lot of equity compensation and you know, maybe they haven't sold any of it. And let's say they have four or $5 million with a million dollar cost basis. Well, it sounds like you might as well sell and diversify because you've been waiting to diversify unknown, like, cause you didn't really want to pay tax. And at the end of the day, the exit tax says, Hey, you're paying whether you sell this or not. Mm-hmm. So it does create some interesting opportunities to think about and it is crazy that they do it on the unrealized um capital gains but i get it they want the tax revenue before you leave but i think the other thing here is this means they're giving up citizenship which is kind of crazy to think about because i, I think a lot of people don't want to because you don't know if you're going to want to come back like i mean yes you're going to go somewhere else maybe it'll be great maybe it won't but I it's pretty hard one time to get U.S. citizenship if you're especially if you weren't born here. It's especially mm-hmm. hard to get it twice. I don't. I, I bet there's a very small amount of people who've ever been able to do that.
1: Absolutely, yeah. It's 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 a, a big step to take, and I think relatively few people actually end up going forward with it year to yeah. year. Uh, the U.S. does publish numbers of, of the number of people who have expatriated each year, and it's usually a few hundred or less than a thousand oftentimes because it's That's kind crazy. of an arduous process and also because it's tough to, to go back. You know, really the, the only downside of, of you know, having U.S. citizenship is the kind of the tax piece, having to report each year even after you leave. But the thing is, you know, a lot of people where they're moving to, the tax rates tend to be higher already. And so... There's not a whole lot of real financial benefit to them giving up citizenship it's more about reducing the reporting burden Um, so most people tend to hold on to it anyways unless they have a really strong attachment to a different country one that has a really strong passport that they're able to you know stay for the most part but if you have any real sort of attachment to the us you have family or, or connections here most people end up holding on to it from what i've
0: seen yeah, we were working with a household in this situation. We thought that they were saying that they wanted to give up U.S. U.S. citizenship in like you know five to ten years, go back to their home country. But and we were like, oh my gosh, like you you are very wealthy. This is going to be a, a crazy tax hit. But, you know, we didn't want to use Roth accounts and you know, mm-hmm. a lot of those different types of thing things. And then we ended up figuring out, no, 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 they just want to go back and live there for a while, mm-hmm. but they're going to basically. You know, keep the U S citizenship because they can see themselves wanting to come back in the future, um, which is two completely different planning. Yeah. You know, the financial plans are entirely different depending on that one answer.
1: Yeah. Big difference for sure. Yeah. You definitely have to think hard about, you know, those types of decisions before, before you take them and they can really have serious implications for your financial plan too. Um, uh, you know, depending on if you want to give, have different citizenships, move to different countries, um, you know, really important to get that kind of clarify beforehand to have a greater impact, you know, down the road.
0: Definitely. Okay. Well, let's kind of, you know, last 10 minutes walk through like common U.S. planning strategies that often fall apart overseas. And mm-hmm. I think this is probably something people overlook. I mean, it's something that I even didn't even think about until I started you were working with some clients in this arena. But you just think like, oh, you know, do Roth, right? You, when you go back to the country, you're never going to pay tax again. But a lot of these retirement accounts and, and tax planning tools and things that we have are like unique to our country, right? Like other countries don't just view them that they exist and that they honor them, at least not yet.
1: Right. Yeah. There, there's so many great tools here in the US that we recommend all the time for our clients that are domestic and living here. Um, but yeah, as, as soon as you have somebody who, left the country, or if they bring up, you know, if they say, hey, I, I might want to, you know, move in three years or five years from now, I can really change things quite quickly. And so, yeah, we can go through a few different, um, you know, strategies that, you know, might be more of, of, a, of a headache than, than you might uh, expect uh, for, for a U.S. resident. Okay. Um, and the first one I was going to bring up was sort of around U.S. retirement account uh, contributions. Um, so, you know, one of the most common kind of tax planning strategies for us in the U.S. here, using your your IRAs, your 401ks, Roth IRAs, uh, to be able to, you know, reduce your tax burden overall. Uh, You know, as as soon as you're in a different country, um, you're exposed to a whole second set of of tax rules. And so anything that you do, you have to put through that lens of, you know, both the U.S. taxation and your new country's taxation. And in most cases, those US retirement accounts tend to not receive the same favorable treatment in your new country um, from a couple different perspectives. You know, number one, if you're using the foreign earned income exclusion, that 120,000 you're taking off the top, um, any income below that that you're using with that exclusion uh, is removed from eligibility to be put into to an IRA or, or Roth IRA. You have to have non-excluded US sourced income to contribute to those. So you, you have a much higher barrier to entry for these different uh, retirement accounts, but then secondly too, you know, you might not actually get the same uh, tax benefit in your new country compared to the U.S. You know, if your if your IRA contribution allows you to reduce you know six thousand or sixty five hundred dollars of income on the U.S. side, um, you know, and you in your other country maybe let's just say it's it's Spain in this example, Spain's not going to give you that same deduction, so you end up paying tax on that income today in Spain, and then you pay the tax on that income again in the U.S. at age 60. So you have to really be aware of how these different countries might be taxing those contributions as well.
0: And Is this really more specific to people who are not like born there and now have become full U.S. citizens? It's kind of like they're here working for a period of time.
1: Yeah, it, in most cases, it's gonna be for those who have established an IRA or have been using it uh, you know, throughout their careers and they move abroad and they expect to keep on using it because it's what they're used to doing. Uh, but then they don't realize that now this other country is going to see that much differently.
0: Oh, as in like they live in a different country and they're trying to contribute to them while they're, right. they're trying to send money back
1: to the to the U S you know, IRA program or whatever it might be.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotcha. That makes sense. What about for people who are living here now?
1: Yeah. Well, so if you're living in the U S now, uh, even if you're, you know, a non-U.S. citizen, maybe you're on a visa or a green card, whatever it might be, you typically can take advantage of U.S. retirement accounts as, as long as the U.S. is sort of your only uh, tax residence. Um, and you can contribute to those, build them up to, to reduce your tax burden. You just need to be cognizant of how that might be treated when you move back to to your home country, if you do move back to your home country.
0: Um, a bit typically with, you typically assume that they're going to count as income when you take them out no matter what. Yeah, I
1: mean, most countries, if, if you have like a pre-tax account, an IRA, a 401k, it tends to be treated the same way where it's seen as, as ordinary income and you, you pay taxes such. And you want to consider that if your home country's tax rates are higher than the U.S., you know, maybe the IRA is not the, the best solution for you. Um, but then secondly, and this is kind of goes to my next one, which is Roth IRAs. Unfortunately, most other countries don't see Roth IRAs as having that same after-tax status that the U.S. does. Um, and what I mean by that is um, you know, here in the U.S., if you put money into a Roth IRA, um, you know, it no longer, it's not going to get taxed again you know, either on income in, in the Roth IRA or at withdrawal in retirement. Um, aside from a handful of countries outside the U.S., they will actually tax the Roth IRA distributions uh, in retirement. So you get double taxed on that. If you, if you put money into that, um, so or in some tax cases, tax? yeah. I
0: was going to say they tax it as capital gains or as income.
1: It can depend on the country. Um, some countries will actually just see it as like a pension and tax it as ordinary income, which is sort of the worst uh, outcome. But I, I have seen some that will do more like capital gains a year to year.
0: So in general, for most of the people that are here and going back somewhere else, Roth is not really account you want to use. Cause it's either, you might as well use an IRA and get the deduction. Versus the Roth side, if you can, or or a traditional four hundred one k, or just use a taxable account because if it's going to have capital gains on the other side too, why not use one that has liquidity the whole time?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, the only time when a Roth IRA could make sense if you're you know leaving back to your own country, um, if you have a country where there there is no income tax, you know that, that could make sense. Um, or if uh, there's, there's a handful that do approve the, the Roth IRA off the top of my head, it's it's, it's the UK. You can do it in France, Canada. Uh, I think Belgium as well. You could do it in, but aside from that, it's sort of like the no tax or if you have some very low tax countries where it's not going to be too big of a burden to have a slight tax on the Roth IRA. Okay.
0: Um, any other types of accounts or things that you think we should talk about?
1: Yeah. I mean, I would just say in general, any, any U S based account where you get tax uh, preferences consider your, your other country. Oftentimes you're not going to get the same benefit, uh, you know, in, in that
0: country that you do in the U S. Okay. So that's 529s. And- yeah. 529
1: HSAs, things of that nature. Yeah.
0: Okay. And then what about, I remember you noting something about tax loss harvesting, mm-hmm. uh, you know, why, why is that something that they should really think about?
1: Yeah. Well, another, you know, common strategy in the U S here, if we're trying to manage your portfolio and Perhaps you have some losses in the portfolio, it can make sense to purposely capture those and use them to reduce taxable income or reduce gains in the future. Um, It's a pretty standard uh, operating procedure uh, here in the US. Um, But a couple things to consider if you are, perhaps in another country, if you're a US citizen living abroad and you've got your portfolio back in the US, you're trying to manage that appropriately. Um, You know, the first thing to consider is that usually in your other country, they're not going to be taxing you in terms of U.S. dollars. They're taxing you in terms of pounds or euros or francs or whatever it might be. And so because of currency exchange rate fluctuations, you can easily have a loss in terms of dollars, but you might have a significant gain in terms of your other currency that you're being taxed in. So if if you're only looking at U.S. dollar uh, version of your portfolio, you might be unintentionally creating a lot of uh, realized gains in a different Mm -hmm. currency and kind of accruing a a larger tax bill than than you were aware of. So that's kind of part one. And then part two of that is that a lot of other countries don't allow you to kind of mix and match your portfolio uh, gains and losses with your earned income or otherwise. So you might not actually get any benefit from uh, capturing uh, losses and using them against other income sources.
0: Makes sense. Um, Okay, cool. Anything else that we need to know before we wrap up? I think we kind of hit the main
1: ones there. Um, You know, I think just the main takeaway was really just to make sure that when you are have another country involved, be aware of their different rules, how those align with the U.S. side, and then have a plan in place to really make sure you're optimizing, you know, between both.
0: Yeah, I think this is like a situation where you definitely want to be working with somebody um, who can help you think through this and solve the problems. And again, there is some uncertainty here, right? Uncertainty or uncertainty here, right? If you live in this country, you're not really sure where you want to go. I mean, you probably want to take the most conservative approach and not really be using those accounts. I think there's certain ones like, you know, a 401k, right? Like, you know, you probably still want to take the match, even depending on how that's going to be taxed later on, because it, you know potentially that could be doubling your investment. And there's mm-hmm. other things like Roths where, hey, if you're going to be leaving the US, most other countries don't view this in the right way, where you might just want to fall back to the taxable account. But regardless, like you want to have probably a financial planner here, a CPA in both countries that can help coordinate on all of it. And the earlier you can plan, the better.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. The earlier, the better. Usually I would say before you move to a different country, at least, you know, six months to a year out, have to get, get some planning in place where you can begin to kind of uh, allocate things properly, get, a, you know, a strategy in place to properly manage that. Um, and I'll, I'll say typically, too, if you are a U.S. citizen moving abroad, in most cases, you're going to end up keeping your portfolio on the U.S. side. Um there are more traps uh, outside of the U.S. as far as investments go. You, you wanna avoid investing in any kind of you know, foreign investment funds which can be deemed as you know, PFIX and have different tax issues. So really make sure that there's a lot of red flags out there that are not really visible until you cross those lines. So just make sure that you are you know, working with somebody who knows about those things or really are researching before kind of opening any new accounts or doing your different contributions too.
0: Definitely. Definitely. All right, Jack. Well, really appreciate you coming on, man. Um, let everybody know if best place is to follow you or reach out to you if they're looking for a plan or to help on this type of stuff.
1: Yeah, I'd be happy to help. Um, you know, I am on LinkedIn. It's Jack Thomas with Creative Planning. Uh, I also on X at Jack Thomas CFP, um, or our uh, website is creativeplanning.com slash international. We have a bunch of different uh, articles there to read.
0: Okay, perfect. Well, appreciate the time, man. Everybody, thank you for listening. Um, This is one of our last episodes of the year. And then we have an interesting change coming in January that I think you all will like. Um, So remember, please rate, subscribe, and we will see you back next week.